Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, this morning, I'm excited to be launching into this new series on seven letters that Jesus wrote to the church. And, uh, you know, at first I was calling this series the, the seven letters series, but that's just so boring and so... Uh, descriptive in a way, but I, I decided really just to call the series Church At, because I noticed that each of the churches um, are addressed according to where they are, where God's planted them. But it also, that little phrase, Church At, has been ringing through my ears all week, because I've been thinking about where, as I read these letters, where is our church at? I think it's an opportunity for reflection, thinking about where our church is in light of this, this clarity with which God expresses his heart for the church. I've got this box I've been keeping for a long time. The box is not so old, but the contents are. Um, I've been collecting letters and cards, handwritten letters and cards that are meaningful. People who have taken some time to just share their heart, um, put them down on paper and send them to me. And I've got just stacks and stacks. I've got all the love letters Jeannie wrote to me in here. I've got stuff dating back to high school, and every now and then, when I'm feeling a little uh, dislodged from my life, um, I will actually open this box up, and I'll just flip through it and read some of the things, because the contents of that box, in, in part, help tell the story of my life. And what is so powerful about a letter, and it's really a rare experience these days to get a letter, isn't it? I mean, like a real handwritten, someone sat down and got carpal tunnel writing for you. That's like a big deal today. And the reason it's so special to me is because when a person takes the time to write by hand, where it's not as easy as just deleting and copying and pasting, they've got to think about what they're going to put on that page. And in so many real ways, they pour themselves into that letter. They pour their heart into it. And when you read it, I can tell you I've found letters in here that are over 25 years old. And I can still hear the person's voice from my life. It's as if they're speaking those words even now. And it blows me away thinking about the fact that Jesus, because he loves his church, not only provided scripture, all of it, but he wrote seven very specific letters from his own voice, his own heart, to his bride, the church. To tell us what it is he has in his heart for us, what he thinks about us, what he wants for us, and what he wants from us. And so we're going to launch into these letters. We're going to examine them carefully with the ear towards what is God saying, not only to the church in Ephesus, the one um, that it's directly addressed to, but what is he then by extension saying to us? And keep in mind, at the end of each letter, he says, as whoever has ears, let them hear What the Spirit says to who? To the churches. And what's interesting is even though he addressed each letter to a specific church, they were all bound together into one large letter called the Book of Revelation, which captured the entire vision John had, and it was circulated to all the churches. In other words, everybody got each other's mail. So these were not meant to be private communications, but every church was meant to read the letter Jesus wrote to all the other churches so that they could learn. And that's the, the reason he did that is because it's very unlikely that one church will only struggle with one challenge or be successful in one thing. 
It's likely that over the course of time, they would face the same things that their sister churches faced. And so by reading and listening, they could benefit from one another's communication with Christ. It's tempting when you're hearing a series like this to wonder, or maybe it's not tempting for you. As a pastor, it's really tempting for me to wonder, which church are we? Which one? Are we we Ephesus? Are we Laodicea? Please don't let it be Laodicea. Are we Philadelphia? Are we Which one of these churches are we? I think that's the wrong way to look at it. Rather than asking which one of the churches are we, I think we should receive all the letters as to all the churches and figure out where we can identify with them and what we can learn from each of them. Now, the interesting thing is that in each of the letters, Jesus um, very pointedly addresses it to a specific church, and the way he names the church is based on where they're planted. He could have said, this is Harvest Community Church, but the churches didn't have names back then like that. He could have said, to the church led by Dave Lee. He didn't do it like that. What he said was, this is a letter to the church at a particular city. And that reveals a lot about God's heart for the world. He doesn't see the church as a pocket within a place. He sees it as a a vessel, an outpost, planted in a very real place in space and time because he had a mission for that church in that city. But it's also important to understand that the challenges and the opportunities facing each church had a lot to do with the specific city where they were. Just like all of us, you can't not be affected by where you live. I mean, look at us, right? You don't even know how to dress in the morning right now, do you? Because one day it's like hot, the next day I I thought it was burning up one day, the next day I'm shivering, I'm wondering where my North Face coat is. What crazy weather is this? And it affects everything, doesn't it? The Midwestern sensibilities, the, the kind of sense of humor we have, gets me in trouble every time I go out west and preach in Los Angeles. Because then people are sensitive, man. I was amazed at how tender... And delicate people in Los Angeles are to humor that comes out of them. We, we tell it like it is. But when you do that over there, like, oh, my gosh, you're so mean. Rude. Crap. It's all that. But then you go out east and like, why are you so tame? New Yorkers are like swearing at me, you know, as I give the message. It, it, where you are shapes who you are in so many ways. And so it's important that Jesus doesn't just talk to the church in a generic way. He says, you are the church in Ephesus. That's going to matter to you. The fact that you exist in Ephesus will affect what you're going through and what I have to say to you. And so if that's true, then before I launch into what Jesus says, I need to let you know at least a little bit about this city so you understand where they are and who he's writing to. Ephesus was not the official capital of Asia Minor at the time in the Roman Empire, but it was the de facto capital. You know, just like Springfield's the official capital of Illinois, but everybody knows Chicago's the capital of Illinois. No one's like, have you been to Springfield? Why? Why would you go to Springfield? (laughs) Has anyone ever been to Springfield where your school didn't drag you there? Maybe some of you have for a good cause. You've gone to petition something. But really, Chicago is the city where when it stamps its feet... The whole state shakes, right? Let's just be honest about that. The mayor of Chicago is more powerful than the governor of Illinois, in my opinion. And he also believes that in his own mind. (laughs) I hope he doesn't hear this and send guys after me. 
So it was one of the most important cities in the region. In fact, it's arguably one of the top three most important cities in the eastern part of the the Roman Empire. At the time they received this letter, they had a population of 250,000 people. You know, when you think of an ancient city, you usually think of a very small walled settlement, right? Maybe like a couple hundred people. This was a city of 250,000 people. It was an architectural marvel. They had one of, their, one of the, big, uh, the big features in the city was an amphitheater that they built into the side of a mountain and overlooked the, the, the bay. The seating capacity of this theater was 25,000 people. That's more than the United Center can hold. And down there, they would have all kinds of shows and oratories, but they would also have gladiatorial combat. And there are, there's a uh, graveyard, a cemetery just for gladiators in that city. It shows you some of the culture from Rome that had spilled over into this region. But by far, the centerpiece, the jewel of the whole city was this. I know it doesn't look like much, but this was the temple to Artemis, the, the Greek goddess of fertility and the hunt. Um, the Roman name of, of Artemis was Diana. And Ephesus was a city who had been basically built like a pedestal, all pointing towards one feature, which is this Greek goddess Artemis and her, her blessing of fertility and of things like the hunt, which would produce the food by which people stayed alive. And so it was very important that they kept Artemis happy because Artemis kept them happy. This building had a square footage of 100,000 square feet, making it at that time by far the largest building on earth. It is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This is an artist's rendition of what it would have looked like most likely in its prime. Check this out. So when you think of what people were building thousands of years ago, don't think huts made out of cow poop and straw. I mean, this whole thing was a marvel because it was made almost entirely out of solid marble. One of the things the ancient Romans did that no one else could quite master was making structures out of stone rather than wood. And so this is probably close to what it looked like when it was in its prime. That, that temple employed literally thousands of priests and priestesses that were employed in helping the whole city turn its attention toward Artemis. Many of them were priestesses who were actually temple prostitutes. Because she was the goddess of fertility, one of the ways they worshipped her was by, you know, in the temple, and they would give offering, and the temple priestess would express Artemis's appreciation of you in different ways. This was the prevailing religious and moral climate in this city. This is what the church planted there was up against. Not only was there all of this weird morality going on in the name of religion in that city, but keep in mind, she was big business. In Acts, it's recorded that that one of the great rites that broke out in Ephesus was because the teaching of the gospel was turning a lot of people away from Artemis, and Artemis was big, big business. Making little silver statuettes of Artemis and selling them to pilgrims was a massive industry, and nobody wanted Paul and his cohort to mess with their junk. And so this is the setting in the city of Ephesus, a very important, large, massive, influential city, very touched by influence from the, Rome, from the Roman Empire, and centered around worship of the Greek goddess Artemis. Is that set in the picture for you? This is where the church exists. It's important to know that because that description frames the challenges and opportunities facing the church there. 
It was Paul, along with Priscilla and Aquila, and later Apollos and Timothy. This is an all-star church planning team. If I could have a team like that, man, we could take over the world. That is a church planning team. And they planted the church in Ephesus and used Ephesus as a launching point to reach all of Asia Minor. And in this letter that Jesus writes to this church some 30 years after Paul had written Ephesians, some maybe 45 to 50 years after the church had been planted, think about how long that is, um, this letter that Jesus writes to them, basically he says two main things. There's two sections to this letter. And the first thing Jesus really says is, hey, good job. Keep doing what you're doing. The church in Ephesus was doing a lot of things right. They were one of the most productive, active, healthy churches in the whole region. And they knew it. 50 years after they were planted, they were still going strong, still working very hard. They were trendsetters and pace setters. They were the anchor church for the entire region. Um, They were the ones who today would be putting on the conferences and writing the books and telling everyone else how church ought to be done because they were living proof. Look at what we're doing here. Do you guys want this? Do you guys want to learn from this? Do you want to see how we got here? Come join us, learn from us. And that's the role that Ephesus played. They took great pride in their role as the most productive. They were the they were batting fourth in the lineup. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like they were the, the star, the go-to guy. Five seconds left, two seconds left. Who gets the ball? Ephesus gets the ball. Ephesus gets the ball because they are the church doing church with great excellence. And the amazing thing to me is God doesn't, Jesus doesn't just look at it and go, ah, that's nonsense. He says, that's good. I'm glad that you're working hard at this. Look what he says. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. He looks at how diligently they're working, and rather than saying it's not good, he praises them for it because the truth is, everything worth doing is worth doing hard. Nothing great on this earth was ever built passively, was it? Ever. When you're passive, things sag, they fall apart, they break. Doesn't it amaze you when a a store goes out of business in your neighborhood? If nobody else moves in, within like six months, it looks like an ancient ruin. I don't know how that works, but it's weird that, that, that without that upkeep, without that hard work, things fall apart so fast. Did you ever notice how fast a relationship can grow cold if you don't work at it? There are friends who now, every time they call, I feel not happy but apologetic because I'm like, oh, man, it's been a really long time since I called this person. So everything in life that's worth building is worth building with hard work. The thing is, it can be really challenging. That's That's a very kind word. It can really stink to work so hard and never be acknowledged for all that you do. I know that there are some here at at this church who are probably struggling with that right now because every day, I mean, I'm just thinking about the trailer team, right? These guys are already here before I wake up on Sunday morning most of the times. That cannot be easy. Think about it. There's so many stories in this church of people who are pouring out everything, giving their best, and week after week after week, it just becomes normal to us. Oh, look, everything's set up great. Let's just walk in and worship. And you don't realize how many people give of themselves to do that. And as you keep doing that, 
When I think about hard work, I think of Jeannie. And I, you guys have no idea. I'm married to her. The girl never stops working. It's very stressful sometimes being married and competing with someone like that. She never stops working. And seeds is not just her job. It is the work of her life. And when I see how hard she works at that, it makes me think there's something beautiful and affirming, something that pleases the heart of God in the value inherently of hard work. And how richly encouraging it must have been for them to hear just those simple words, I know your deeds. There are a lot of times when those words are scary. I know your deeds. I had a friend, Pastor Young, who in college, when we were students together, he would always randomly walk to me and goes, I know what you're doing. He wouldn't know. He had no idea. He's just guessing. But all the time, he, he hit the jackpot because I was always sinning. I'm like, dang, how's he know? But that's, that, you know, so when you hear, I know what you're doing, I know your deeds, that's not always welcome words. But when you're toiling away and you feel invisible and totally unacknowledged, for Jesus to point that out and say, I see everything. I see your hard work. I know it's not easy. There are a million times when you could have cut corners and no one would have known. But you didn't. You worked at it, and I, nobody else may see, but I see everything that you do. The world may never thank you. The people you serve may never acknowledge you. But I see everything, and I know your deeds. Imagine the encouragement that brought to the church in Ephesus as they thought about how hard they'd work for him and how openly he acknowledges that. This church receives some of the strongest praise from Jesus. And the word hard work is actually one Greek word. It's a word that suggests not just normal diligence, but exertion to the point of exhaustion. I've been, you know, um, the Eatons donated a beautiful piece of exercise equipment, and it has become the centerpiece of my life lately. I'm working the living daylights out of that machine. And I've learned from this guy named Mike Chang on YouTube that it's good. Do you guys know this guy? Yeah, thank you. You know what I'm saying? Thank you, John. Check is in the mail. But I'm telling you this. I've learned this idea of, of working out to muscle failure, where it's like this. You're like, I can't put up any more. And then you stop, and you feel just huge. Just huge. I'm not going to take off the shirt, because then you'd all be stumbled. But it's that idea that you don't just go, ah, that's comfortable, I'm going to stop. You go and you go and you're like, I can't. And you go, one more. That's what a trainer does. He looks in your face and spits and you go, one more, you wuss. And you put it up and you're like, I can't. Oh, I did it. <laughs> that's hard work. At every point, you're like, I'm so late. I'm so sleepy. Can't I just fake it? Let's just run with what we got. And you know, I'm going to do this right. He deserves the best and I push through. You know, you, you guys who cook, right? You know that nobody else can really tell whether it's awesome or awesome, awesome. But you know. And so you go the extra mile. You know the praise team, they notice every little plink that's off. They're like, oh, sorry about praise. What do you mean? You know that one note that was like, bang. I didn't even notice, but they notice. That is what it means to give your best. You're calibrated differently. And then he, he praises another thing about them. He says, I also know your perseverance. Perseverance is about enduring something when enduring it doesn't come easily. You heard about the context in which the Ephesian church was living. Every day there were attacks from outside the church. There was outright persecution. 
There were people confiscating their property illegally. There was all kinds of belittling of them. Some of these people were very educated, very influential. But the minute they say, I follow Jesus of Nazareth, everyone said, you are a moron. Is that familiar? Because in America, that's about as close as we're going to come to oppression. But it feels pretty bad when someone looks at you like you're, a, you're like a backwater yokel for believing in Jesus. Especially if you're in academia. I mean, Mike, you're a professor. Do you, do you ever sense that in academia where your fellow professor, I, I teach the sciences, but I also worship the creator. <laughs> creator. Are you Amish? Do they still make people like you? And you get that. That's what they were living against. And then they started to get a lot more intense physical persecution. And the worst of it was soon to come under the the emperor Domitian in Rome. On top of that, had they joined with the prevailing culture in emperor worship and in the worship of the goddess Artemis, it would have opened all kinds of doors of opportunity. I mean, there weren't equal opportunity, equal employment opportunity laws back then. You could just ask, all right, so just tell me, uh, do you go to the Temple of Artemis? Actually, no, I don't. (laughs) You're in the third round of interviews for a job. Actually, no, I don't. I actually follow Jesus. Follow who? Thank you. We'll call you if you get the job. It costs them something. To be outed as a follower of the way created all kinds of cost and discomfort for the Christians in Ephesus. But what he says is you stood your ground when it wasn't easy to do that. Pay attention to these things Jesus is affirming. I'm going into detail because what Jesus affirms we should do. What he praises in another church is a way of saying to us, everybody else, it's like when you're commending one child, but you raise your voice to the other children here. Oh, thank you for walking the dogs without me having to tell you. You're not telling, that kid's not deaf. He doesn't need to hear it that loud. But you're hoping the other kids hear you and go, oh, that's what we should be doing. That's what Jesus is saying. By praising one church for what they do, he's affirming to all the other churches, do what they're doing. This is good stuff. Follow their example. We should learn to push through after we hit that quitting point. And then he says, I'm also very pleased with you because you have repelled evil in your midst. Now, don't get this wrong. It can mean taking a strong stand against sin in your community of faith. And I think we ought to do that. When somebody cheats on their spouse, we shouldn't all just mutely be like, well, you know, the grace of God. We should say, that is wrong what you're doing. We should be able to speak boldly and call sin what it is and stop pussyfooting around the fact that what is wrong is wrong. We can still love the person, but we can take a strong stand on sin. But I don't think that's what's primarily in view here. What he says is, I praise you because not only do you take a personal stand against sin, but there are snakes, wolves in sheep's clothing, who have come in your midst and try to influence you away from the truth of the gospel, and you have spotted them and given them the boot. Hit the road, Jack. False teachers tried to seduce people away, gain a following for themselves with the distortion of the truth. And the church was sharp enough that they refused to have anything to do with it. What Jesus indicates is one of the greatest evils, one of the things he hates. And by the way, there are things Jesus hates. It's weird, right? You know, Jesus is love, but he hates some stuff. There's some stuff he can't stand. One of those things is a distortion of the truth. 
I've heard this so many times over the course of my, my ministry. People making up stuff about Christianity that helps them live it the way they've chosen to live has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. Oh, oh I'm totally cool with this because this is how it works. Who said, well, you know, I say it. I, I think this is how it should work. I'm okay with this version of Christianity. Thanks, Pastor, but I'm good. I know what I believe. Jesus hates when the truth is distorted. And if he hates it when we do it, he hates even more when other people with their influence and giftedness try to pull others away from the truth. Distort distort the truth in a way that teaches that poison to others. Paul, you know, he was having a farewell time with the elders in Ephesus. It's recorded for us in Acts chapter 20. It was the last time he would see these folks. And one of the things he said to them gathered on a beach there was, guys, I'm not going to visit you again. We've had some good years together, but know this. There are some people coming who are going to make a mess in your church. I know that false teachers like vicious wolves will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock. Even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw a following. He said, be on your guard for these guys, because in the beginning, they will sound like they're making a lot of sense. But there's something fundamentally wrong about what they're teaching, and it will rip apart the church. As a something like a student of history, here's something I've observed about the church. The church flourishes under physical persecution, but it dies, it withers under the poison of bad theology. You can punch the church in the face. Roll it over with a steamroller, stab it, cut it into pieces, and the church will rise again and flourish. But you poison it with one bad, unbiblical idea, and you'll see that same church rot and die. I don't know why it works that way, but ideas are intensely powerful things. And people who take God's ideas and distort them are among the most evil people in the world. Hear this, because it's important that the church be on its guard against anyone who would come among God's people and distort the truth. And the truth is, if I'm the guy, the only guy in the church who's reading and studying and learning to talk, I can bamboozle you. How's that for a word? I could lead you so astray if you're not paying attention. That's why it's so critical that you, as the members of the church, Be not theologically ignorant. It's so important. You know the truth. You study it so that your life will not be torn apart by bad theology, which is coming from the top. If I ever go astray, I want you to kick me out of here. Send me to pastoral rehab or church jail or somewhere. I pray that I will never distort the truth from this pulpit. And if I'm ever at risk of doing that, please give me an early warning signal when you feel discomfort coming your way. How do you spot a false leader? Somebody not speaking for God. I can think of at least two important ways, and I want to share this with you. It's, not, it's a little off topic, but this is important for you to hear. There's two reliable ways to spot a bogus Christian leader. Jesus told us in Matthew 7, 15 to 16, Be aware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really vicious wolves. Listen to this. You can identify them by their fruit. That is, by the way they 
act. Most leaders are leaders because they're good at talking. They've got a silver tongue. A good communicator can get you to believe just about anything. I once bought into a timeshare vacation home, never used it, because this silver-tongued devil just... I, I have to have the... I, I'm so weak to a genie. is like, forget it. No, no. I'm just so easily seducible. So just because a guy's good at talking doesn't mean anything. You want to know who's the real deal? Watch their life. Visit their home, walk with them, eat with them, observe carefully the fruit of their life. Then you will know who's the real shepherd and who's the false shepherd. And when you see a fake, call them out. Expel them from your midst because they will influence you away from Jesus Christ. Here's a second reliable way. John himself writing in his first little epistle, 1 John chapter 4, he says, Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if the spirit they have comes from God, for there are many false prophets in the world. Now, by testing the spirits, there is some amount of supernatural discernment. But it's not just all about, move out, let me see. Yeah, this guy's okay. I felt it. It's not that subjective, because look what he goes on to say. This is how we know if they have the spirit of God. If a person claiming to be a prophet acknowledges that Jesus Christ came in a real body, that person has the Spirit of God. But if someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that person is not from God. Such a person, listen to this, has the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming into the world and indeed is already here. You want to know how to spot a fake The the true litmus test is their view of Jesus Christ. You can say all kinds of great moral teaching, wise philosophies, rules for life, but if that person does not have the truth about Jesus in their proclamation and in the way they worship and walk with Him, that person cannot be a leader in the true church of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what else a leader does. Their stand on Jesus is the only true legitimacy of their authority. And so he commends the Ephesians because they did what we all should do. When you see garbage in the leadership, boot it out from among you. Never let your heart and soul be swayed by the bad teaching of people who have forsaken the truth of God and have stopped fearing him. So, so far, so good. This church, among all the others, receives the highest praise. There's so many good things Jesus says to the Ephesian church. And then you get to verse 4 and you hear the record scratch. And all of a sudden, the letter takes a slightly different tone. He says, all that is good. Nothing I'm about to say takes away from what I've just said. I affirm all of that. But here's the big complaint I have about you. And he says, I, the second thing, the way he finishes this letter is, you've got to return to your first love. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. I think one of the hazards of working so hard at something is that as you work so hard, the work itself becomes an end rather than a means. We get very confused, don't we, as people, about the difference between ends and means. 
Have you ever seen somebody who gets so obsessive about planning a vacation, there's nothing restful whatsoever about the process, both before and after. You come back, you're like, I am exhausted from that stupid trip that you made us go on. You stink at vacation planning. I am so worn out from your vacation. That's a great illustration of exercises in missing the point. Working so hard that creating the perfect thing starts to outweigh the actual purpose of the thing you're making. I think that's what happened at Ephesus. They were working so hard at building a house for God that they found themselves over time building a house for someone they didn't love anymore the way they used to love him. I think that that very often happens in marriage. It might be happening in your relationship right now. Whether you're dating or married... It's very possible that as you, you know, after the wedding, before the wedding, the wedding is the work. Everyone's so focused on busy, 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 as if to say, I don't want to actually think about what we're doing. That'll freak me out. So let's get real busy planning a party and then a trip afterwards. And let's not talk about the 80 years, maybe, of life we've got to do together after that. Too much. So we always find some work that veils our eyes, keeps us narrowly focused, Sometimes intentionally so we don't have to think about the point. I don't want to actually think about the weight of all this. But you have to. Because if you miss the point, the very thing you're working so hard to build will just die. That's the destiny of everything built that has forgotten its purpose. What Jesus is saying to them is he would trade in all of the hard work they've done if they would just return to the love that they enjoyed together in the early years of the church. It's not too late for them, but it might be too late very soon. And so he writes this letter in the tone of a husband saying to his wife, something has gone wrong in our relationship. We're building this perfect life together, but our hearts have grown so far apart and it's dying. I don't know what to do here. Everyone visits us and think you have a wonderful home, you have wonderful children, you have a wonderful job, but something between us has died, and if we don't revive it, it will be over very soon. It's that urgency with which Jesus is now writing this letter saying, everything we've done is great, but what's missing is the most important piece. It's the engine that drives this whole thing. We have fallen out of love with each other. We've lost something. And so he gives them some remedies, some practical steps to recapture this lost first love. One of the things he says is, please remember what we once had. That's good advice for any relationship that has grown cold over the years. Is pause, take out that box of letters or that old photo album, and go take a stroll down memory lane. Remember what we once were, what we once had, because that's not dead yet. It's still there. We just forgot it. He says, consider. Consider is a very strong word in Scripture. It's not just, hey, think about it if you want to when you get a chance. It's sit down. Don't do anything else. Look at it. Reflect. Where were you in the early years? Consider how far you've fallen. I found a shoebox recently filled with vintage photos from Harvest, and as I was flipping through each one, I literally looked at every one of those photos and they were flooding me with memories. Now, let me tell you, honestly, organizationally, what we have today 
beats the living snot out of what we had back then. Okay? I mean, organizationally, everything's firing on all cylinders. We're doing okay, but there was something in those early years, those faces that were with us from the beginning. And I remember what it was like to sit in little meetings where none of this existed yet, and everything was possibility, and we loved one another, we trusted one another. We were all making tremendous sacrifices for this vision. Some of that really changed over the years. I'm partly responsible for that. But there is something that marked the early years of this church that I long for us to return to. Something beautiful about the good old days. And maybe I am now officially at that age where the good old days seem far better than the days ahead. <laughs> I don't want to lose what it felt like to be building this church when we are just starting up. And I think it's not too late for us to recapture that. I think it's important if we're going to do that, to spend a little time and energy remembering each of us what it was like when we first started to walk with Jesus Christ. And then he says, repent. Do you see how strong that is? It's repent. Because if you found that you have forsaken your first love, that is a serious lapse a very grievous thing you've done. Because you've built a shell and you've taken out the part that's most important. And if that's what you've found you've done, you need to repent. One author, a guy named Sam Storms, really, he, he gave me, uh, not personally, in his book, he gave me a really interesting idea, a definition for repentance. He said, repent is this. It's stop, then start again. Whatever it is you realize you were doing badly or wrong, just stop it. Be decisive about it. Don't say, I'll gradually ease out of it. I'll buy an e-cigarette. and this. Just stop. Throw away the last pack. Be done. Don't wean yourself off of it. Immediately, decisively act against whatever it is that's working against your soul. It doesn't say they slipped out of or fell out of. It's nothing so passive. They didn't lose their first love. They forsook it. That's a very powerful word. It's the word that's used in Greek to describe a divorce, when you cast someone away from you. It's the word we use to describe rejection, neglect, abandonment. It's when a soldier goes AWOL from his unit. All those words are, used, are, 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 are described by the same word here, for forsake, you have abandoned, divorced, neglected your first love. That means at some point, they made a conscious choice to value something else above and beyond the love relationship they had with Jesus Christ. I think that's happened for a lot of us in this room. If you're completely zoned out, tuned out of this, maybe it's already happened. I don't know. But there was a time when the voice of Jesus... And this desire to know him, have more of him, dominated your heart. But it's likely that each of us individually and together as a church may have turned a corner at some point where we knew that loving Jesus and being loved by him was central, but we decided, yeah, that's awesome, but let's build a great structure first. I know we're not doing well in our marriage. Let's just go on an awesome vacation and see if that fixes us. Come on. Tell your girlfriend, oh, I really messed up, but here's a ring, here's a necklace, here's your favorite candy, a dinner at your favorite. Do you see what we do? 
rather than addressing the most basic heart issue, we paint over it with offerings and sacrifices and gifts. And Jesus says, please don't do that. Repent of the fact that you actually abandoned the priority of your first love. And you began chasing something else as more important. And you did it in my name. And then he says this to them. Return. Do the things you did at first. You know, back when the the Ephesians first got the the gospel, there's a very interesting story recorded for us in Acts chapter 19, where it says all those who used to practice sorcery, let's just make your hair in the back of your neck stand. I don't think they were like magic trick guys. I think they actually practiced real magic. Like I think there were supernatural forces called sorcery way back when. And there are these people who engaged in the dark arts and they all brought their scrolls, these things worth a lot of money, and they brought it all to the one central square and in a symbolic gesture, they, they lit a huge bonfire and they threw it all in. And the estimated value of all the scrolls they burned up that day was 50,000 drachmas. That's approximately 137 years wages. It's a lot of dough. Now, you could argue all day back and forth about the merits of doing something like that. But I know that for people in my generation, way back in the 80s when we were becoming Christians, one of the most common stories, one of the most shared experiences of the big day when we got rid of our secular music. Old people, where are you at? Do you remember? We used to go to rock seminars where we play backward masking from Beatles songs. and be like, Oh, my goodness, it's been like telling us to worship Satan backwards. I don't know the last time I listened to anything backwards, but apparently it's all there. And so I remember thinking, at this point in my life, I had a conundrum. Like, I loved my music. What teenager doesn't love their music? But then I loved Jesus. And in those days, say what you will about it, my leaders taught me that one of the ways that the enemy enters my life is through the music I open my heart to. And they drew a line in the sand and said, if you want to be influenced more by Jesus then by your music, cross over that line. Don't flirt with it, cross over it. And so I was so zealous for Jesus. Where did that go? I was so zealous for him. I did that, but I did it Dave Lee style. Everybody was so bored. They just put it in a garbage can and tied it up. I lined up all my tapes. Do you remember cassette tapes? I lined them all up on the edge of the dumpster. Then I went up to my second floor apartment building and I took my BB rifle and I shot them all into the garbage can one by one. Got to have some fun with it. I mean, I spent a lot of money on that music. But there was this weird feeling in my heart after the last one went tumbling into the dumpster. Something important happened that day. I crossed the line in my love relationship with Jesus. I made a very clear statement, you matter more to me than anything. It was a symbolic act, but it was a very deeply affecting symbolic act for me because it was a boundary marker in my faith relationship with him. It was one of those ways in which I was trying in my clumsy teenage way to what? Express my love for him. I knew it was there. How do I show him? What do I do to demonstrate what he means to me? Ladies, would you like it if the guy got in his and said, listen, I really love you. I want you to imagine with all your power and might that I'm putting a real ring on your finger. I, if, if I really cared about you, I would have spent the money, but just pretend 
It'll save us a lot. Just pretend. Is that good? Is that great? (laughs) Decisively, no. (laughs) That is not a great idea because love requires some kind of tangible expression, doesn't it? Maybe it's not about how much you spent on a ring, but if you just pretend all the time, if it's just words, it doesn't actually grow in your heart, does it? And so he says to them, remember those days when you did stuff like that, burning scrolls and drawing lines in the sand and crossing them saying, we declare for Jesus. Where are those days? Go back to that. But here's what he's not saying. He's not saying go back and just ape those behaviors. I'm not going to have a ceremony tonight where I delete all of my secular MP3s from my Mac. I don't feel an inner compulsion to do that. Not today. If I had known then what I know now about music. You know, but, but I do know this. That day caused my faith to grow, and I need to think today, what equals that in my life at this moment? When's the last time I did anything symbolic or otherwise that signaled to Jesus, this is my best expression of love for you right now. This is what I've got. It's huge to me. It hurts me to do this. But this is my way of saying you matter more to me than anything else in this world. That's what he's telling us to do. Find and recapture the essence of those early years, not the activities and the behaviors, but the heart that drove you to do all of that. Let me just wrap up here with this. There's urgency to what Jesus is saying to the church in Ephesus and what he's saying by extension to us. He's saying, if you, and this is the only church who heard this particular warning. If you don't fix this, I'm going to have no choice. I've got to come down and remove your lampstand. Do you know what that's like? Thank God for Mark Burnett and Survivor. He's given us the perfect modern picture for this. When Jeff Probst takes that thing, he snuffs out your tribe of smoking. Take your stuff and get out. It's that. It's the snuffing out of the flame that represents the existence, the vitality of the church. And he says, if you lose this, if you don't repair this, it won't matter all this other stuff you did. It's all great, but it cannot stand apart from the love you have for me and the love I have for you. If we lose that, the rest of it is all done. Just like a loveless marriage. It's done. You may not know it's dead yet, like a zombie that's dead, but nobody told him. Do you know how many churches are already dead and they don't know it? Because years ago, loving Jesus stopped mattering. Becoming awesome started mattering more. Influencing others. Getting bigger, whatever you name it. There are so many competing motives for building a church. But the minute a church or a Christian loses sight of this central call and invitation of Jesus, come and let's love each other for the rest of our lives. You lose that doesn't matter because the lampstand will be removed and the church will either die or it will go on doing what it's doing with no life and no power. That's the fate. It's not a punishment. It is a result of trying to build the church without love for Jesus. I've really, really been... um, pushed very hard this week in my heart 
about my role as a pastor here, about my own vision for this church. And it's been a really good timing for me as I think about plans for the future and what I dream of for our church. I know it's the same way for our our, our pastoral team. We have desires for this church, but central to all of them is this one deep desire, that we will be a church that honors Jesus by loving him and by acknowledging every day how well he has loved us. May nothing else ever seduce us away from that great goal. It is what is worth dying for. It's what's worth living for. And God help us, by his grace, that will be our story forever. Help us do that. Hold the highest standards for what it means to be the church. And if you ever sense we're being seduced by something else, please wave the red flag and let us know. Because I don't want to slip into that. I know you don't either. Why don't we just bow our heads as the worship team comes up? Let's, let's gather ourselves. The things that Jesus affirmed stand on their own legs. He really was pleased when the church worked hard, when it endured past the point of easy quitting, when it so loved the truth, it would not harbor any distortion of it. It expelled anyone who tried to teach what is not true. By God's grace, may we also become such a church, a hardworking, persevering, truth-honoring church. And I think our history reveals that in so many ways, God has done that in our midst. Here's the part of the letter we need to hear from his voice today. Do not forsake the love you had at first. Don't let pain or disappointment or conflict rob you of this which makes Christian life worth living. The church is nothing without the love of Jesus Christ. You lose that, you have lost it all. So maybe for many of us, our simple prayer this morning can be, would you bring me back to the love I had at first when I was just really knowing you and walking with you? And I would have done anything for you. Bring me back there. So why don't we spend a a couple minutes praying? Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.